Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, do you struggle with n- big numbers? I mean, certain members of the government do. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stories around 200,000, this exponential growth, that. Uh, we're all now armchair statisticians trying to work out what all the numbers mean. Well, I've been speaking to an actual statistician, the award-winning economist Tim Harford. He's from uh, Radio Falls, more or less. He's written loads of books on numbers and how to make sense of them. And a really fascinating chat where he explains how we can try to work out for ourselves which are the numbers we should be focusing on and which we shouldn't. So chat coming up with Tim in a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and on a Tuesday. It is, of course, Finkovic. It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Ah, yes, it's that time on a Tuesday when we're joined by Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And David Aronovich. Morning, David. Do you know, sometimes I wish I had the voice of Alan Rickman, in which I would say to you at this point, you'll feel festive surely with Matt Chorley. <laughs> Did you like our jingle? Do you like our jingle sent in by a listener? Gillian it, is actually, it is actually rather fun, isn't it? Yeah, yes. I've, got my, I've got my jingle bells as well, so if at any point you want to burst into song. No, I like the jingle. I don't want you to jingle your bloody bells, honestly. <laughs> That's right. a step too far. Right, uh, let's get on with it. David, I want to talk to you about one of your tweets. Uh, the contribution, this is what you tweeted yesterday, the contribution of David Davis MP to 21st century Britain would make an interesting doctoral thesis. So let's let's sketch out what that thesis is. Discuss. David Davis is a really, a str- it's, it's a really interesting kind of a, a, of a politician, a politician's story uh, and so on. I mean, I think it's fair to say that David Davis is one of these people that no other politician trusts. I think, Danny, that's broadly right, isn't it? Because um, they never quite know what his agenda is and what he's up to and why he's doing it. He was very influential or fairly influential around the the Brexit thing, then completely disappeared as Brexit kind of hove into view 
and we actually got doing the things in Brexit and are rather not doing any of the things that he said we would be able to do. He then turns up in his guise as libertarian, as a kind of a, a, a gadfly around the government at odd kinds of, odd kinds of times. Um, he was, of course, the main contender versus uh, David Cameron for the leadership back in 2005, which he lost. And if you remember, he had women going around with vote double D on their chests, uh, famously. Um, I've always thought there was kind of element of him, which was a bit kind of Leslie Phillips, you know, kind of, well, hello, ding dong, um, et cetera. But that may be entirely uh, unfair. Um, and it, and the way in which he kind of pops up this sort of uh, this maverick opportunism, you might kind of call it, with a hint of principle, it just really fascinates me. And he's been at it again this week. Uh, and I gather you got him on the programme. Yeah, apparently, yes, he is. He is coming on later. So if we, we can ask him if he thinks he should be the subject of a doctoral thesis. But maybe Danny will tell me that actually I've got it entirely wrong and he's totally um, tedious and uninteresting and I should no, be thinking about someone else. No, you have got it right. I don't think the Leslie Phillips thing works at all, but um, I I think that um, he's certainly a loner. So he's like it's interesting when you say he's not trusted by people. He has a lot of allies, but they tend but they do move from issue to issue because he doesn't. He's not very predictable. And and actually, I've come to rather um, my, my sort of admiration for him has increased because a lot of times I haven't agreed with him, and I really didn't agree with his leadership thrust i thought his decision to resign um as shadow home secretary was really eccentric but um i've often come to find you know things like double jeopardy uh or um or judicial issues he's often very good and i think you know if he didn't exist you'd kind of have to invent him that there are there are politicians that michael Foot did that but loyalists and loners uh, dividing people into into their sort of natural and i'm definitely much more of the former than i am of the latter and if you only had um loners uh, you wouldn't be able to form any sort of government right and, and david davis showed that actually by by not ending up being a home secretary in david cameron's government even though he was slated to be that then by not uh, being able to stay in the job with Theresa May as Education Secretary, despite being sort of quite personally law to her, but he wasn't able to stay there. So he's shown that. But 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 at the same time, if you only had um, loyalists, I think politics would be unbearable. So um, he does. I think you're right. He does actually that it would be the subject of a doctoral thesis. But I but I don't. I, I mean that in a sort of relatively flattering way, actually, um, even though sometimes I find his positions infuriating as he finds mine. Um, actually, I think, as I say, if you didn't exist, you'd probably have to invent him. I do remember... It's very good, you... Matt. Can I just say, Matt, that was really good. I mean, honestly, that was really, really good. And I hope you kind of take that out and, and, and print it, because um, Danny's completely convinced me. I mean, I was kind of kind of halfway there anyway, but that makes an awful lot of sense, and his division makes an awful lot of sense as well. I feel like we're, 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 we're writing somebody's column live on, live on the radio. I'm not sure who's... Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> not mine. <laughs> If, if it's still hanging about by the end of the week, I'll take it. Um, uh, I know, <laughs> Danny, I've... <laughs> uh, I mean, I know from, from personal experience and exchanges with David Cameron that his relationship with David Davis uh, was not always a good... I mean, he... Partly because David David Cameron was someone who prided that, that sort of loyalty and I don't think could really understand David Davis going off and doing his own thing. Do you think that's... Yeah, well, I remember meeting with him on a... We were at a party, actually, on the day that um, David... 
had done that, David Davis, and I was with somebody that uh, was a friend of mine. Just explain. David Davis was Shadow Home Secretary in David Cameron's front bench, and uh, he was very cross about ID cards and New Labour's erosion of civil liberties. He saw it, so he quit as an MP to fight a by-election to highlight the issues of civil liberties. And then all the other main parties didn't stand. So it was just David That's Davis right. and some crap. But it was puzzling to David Cameron David. because he was sort of resigning in pursuit of the policies David Cameron believed in. And I remember I was talking to David Cameron with a friend of mine that he that David Cameron didn't know. And he didn't want to just hold forth about David Davis and what he thought in front of this other person. So he just goes, it was, it's very interesting, isn't it, Danny? And I knew everything, I knew exactly what he was trying to uh, to say to me. But as I say, as I said before, people, um, D- David Cameron definitely belongs to the loyalists rather than loners. Uh, and f- sometimes what loners do can appear completely baffling to us. Um, and that was one of those instances, right? But uh, if you look across the whole of David Davies's career, it makes much more sense uh, than, than treating it as a single data point. The only thing I would say about David Davies, and maybe this is true of a lot of politicians, is that he is that he bends arguments to suit his case with a fabulous alacrity and we bends reality to suit his case. Well, I knew you were going to say that. I, I, I knew you were going to say that, Danny, but some people do it more than others, and it actually, I think it, I think it matters a bit, and sometimes it matters more than others. Sure. I, I don't think I felt that his arguments, particularly, even when I disagreed with him, which I certainly did in on Europe, I didn't feel as though he was bending... Um, well, it was, it was all argument. going to be a doddle, and he can... Uh, and, well, no, and I thought he was just... Sure you that it was I all do going think to be he felt that. Doddle, with, with nego- I think he I don't felt think that. He, felt, he was I completely wrong. Think, but I, I didn't don't do think he thought that. Well, in that case, he's stupid, uh, you know, it, because that was a stupid thing to think. I mean, it was a stupid argument because it obviously wasn't going to be the case. And I don't think he's a stupid man. So I, so you can say he, well, he convinced himself of his case as people do and then kind of embellished it uh, 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 and so on. But I had a terrible feeling that he was prepared to be careless if that suited him. Uh, the one thing I quite like about him is that I've written some terrible things about basically taking the mickey when he was Brexit secretary, when he claimed that the impact assessments of Brexit were in incredible detail, but also did not exist. Uh, and uh, he turned up at a meeting and he didn't have any papers because it was all in his head. Uh, all of that I thought was quite funny, but maybe it's just because he's a grown up. He's always taken that in quite good spirit. Sometimes if I've tweeted something he's disagreed with, he's called me up. We've had a perfectly pleasant conversation he just wants to chew the fat and get you know he's not he's not mad like some of his colleagues are he's not rancorous with journalists uh, yeah. that's absolutely true and that is uh, and that makes him a pleasant person to talk to there's that's no there's no doubt of that well we'll ask him later on he's on uh, a bit later on. we'll ask him um if he if he wants to be the subject of your doctoral thesis uh david <laughs> uh, which you can you can you can knock out in an afternoon um, right, let's uh, let's move on and talk about when is the point that we start taking the polls seriously? When yeah. is the point where, where where Boris Johnson going down? The fact that in most polls now, I think Keir Starmer is seen marginally as a better choice to be prime minister over Boris Johnson, though still behind. Don't know at what point. Matt, do we can take I the polls seriously? Can, can I start this one because uh, and I have a particular reason for doing it. I was working at the BBC in 1992 in the aftermath of the exit poll that went badly wrong in the 1992 election, and after that, as is the BBC style, there was a massive uh, post mortem. Uh, 
And there was a huge discussion. I mean, a huge discussion in the news divisions and so on about how you should report polls. A series of uh, rules were made that you uh, like you never report single polls and so on, and also the conditions under which you would take polls and and report polls because of the possibility of uh, error. Now, with social media, one of the things that's happened is there's a whole group of people, lots of people, who will always give you the latest poll result and always treat the latest poll result as if it was somehow of great significance and was going to tell you really what was going to happen and so on. And so you make a division in your mind between, if you like, polls which could be right or wrong, but actually won't tell you a very, very big story, and then runs of polls which actually begin to be something that you can dig into analytically and say, yes, I think, I now think I can see something going on. And what I'm interested in at this point, and uh, interested in yours and Danny's view about this, is whether this run of polls we've got at the moment is a run of polls which we should say, yeah, something is really serious, something fairly serious is going on here and uh, so we don't consign it if you like to the kind of the monthly poll uh, level which could mean practically anything and where any way polls differ um so that's why i kind of you like table table this item for our agenda <laughs> well my my view would be i think that the, so far at least what's tended to happen is that although the toys have gone down that hasn't tended to benefit keir starmer labor tended to end up ahead by the Tories undertaking them, if you say, rather than a sort of surge of support. And the same is true with Keir That does seem to be changing a bit. That Now when you see the changes, you know, it's Tories down four or five points as Labour up four. So that does seem to be a, a switch. I mean, I suppose the biggest thing, Danny, is that, that politics is just incredibly volatile these days. And that, yeah, that, so, that... look, I'd be looking for a number of things. First of all is uh, longevity, and we just don't know at the moment. Um, we all have an instinct. I do think it something sort of it represents something really important and the reason that I do is because um, I think it represents a change in the Prime Minister's uh, poll ratings that may turn out to be a bit longer standing because one of the reasons you can't take you know a small run of polls is that sometimes the reason is a switch sometimes the reason is simply that the, the voters for a particular party are much shyer they're saying they're less certain about voting um and therefore they're marked down in the polls so it's it's a feature of the modeling of the polls um rather than of uh, a long-term change in public opinion it's also you know like we're three years from an election quite possibly certainly a couple of years that's an awful long time um so i i think it's i, I think um I do think this is significant for because because of the change in the prime minister's ratings, and I think that when you get a when you get a long term political opposition can't win if it's losing on the economy and on the prime minister. And before this, Labour was losing on both, even when it was even in the polls or just a little bit ahead in the polls. And now that's not the case. I think that is quite significant. But you know, if just for an example, it's by no means certain the Conservative Party will face the next general election with the same leader. Um, and um, so therefore you can't take this as telling you that much about the next general election but it does it the question is whether it's anything more than a kind of bouncing round of even current opinion I'd like a little bit more of the of, to learn a little bit more but I think it probably is that was as far as I would go how much more how much more would do it for you if you had these uh, broadly similar polls to these going on three months next, probably. let's say three months 
So if we come back to this essentially in two and a half months' time, yeah. and it's broadly the same, in that case, we can say we think we now yeah, yeah. understand and establish uh, patterns. Uh, but it's a reasonable measure of current opinion, right? So the, the, the important thing about it, the important thing about that, that doesn't, that is, gives you some data that helps you decide longer term public opinion, gives you some data about the next generation, but mainly it just tells you about the current position because we're two years away from uh, from an, an election. Um, and, and, and you think to yourself, what is the main variable that's changed? Um, and it is uh, views of best prime minister. Um, if that's, that remains stable, I think it probably will tell you something that will be significant if it remains stable over and over and, and finally Dan, sorry to take up your role uh, uh, matt uh, to no, usurp it momentarily but um uh, you know the conservative party far better than i do and much much better than i ever want to um uh, how much are they looking at these polls and thinking um yeah i'm i'm now getting anxious um so my my, my understanding of it is um, the issue that's causing the Prime Minister the biggest trouble is the, his COVID policy, um, and not necessarily this. Uh, that people are still inclined to a view, which I don't actually hold, that there's some magic in Boris Johnson where he understands the electorate um, in a way that and, and has a connection with the electorate that Conservatives can't have without him. Um, and, um, you know, I think is that the reasons for him having done reasonably well are quite banal, actually, that, that the electorate is more economically left wing than the Conservative Party and more economically right wing than a lot of it's more socially right wing than a lot of um, Labour MPs. And so both groups find it difficult to understand why Boris Johnson's positioning works. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but but they but there is a view that he has a sort of magic. And I think that still probably remains. Um, and it takes an awful lot before there is a kind of move to to remove somebody. And it's usually got an ideological element in it. And of that, I think the COVID stuff is the more dangerous to him, even than um, some of these ethics issues. Although, in parenthesis, Matt, I did think I do think if Christopher Geit uh, were to decide and he hasn't said that he that he will or that he won't i'm assuming he won't therefore but if the christopher guy were to decide to resign i think that will be a tremendously serious issue for the prime minister one that he may not survive i've always thought by the way him... i was i was going to nominate if you were to ask me matt uh, lord guite as my man of the year yeah because i've said this to you david i've said this to you david privately yeah, so and, is, and, the, and i you know i don't want to be coward about it watchdog who no. um is he's the second one Alex Allen resigned because Boris Johnson wouldn't get rid of Pritchard Patel when she broke the ministerial code for bullying. Uh, they appointed Lord Guite, and now he's the one who's looking into wallpaper. That's the one that he was he was appears to have been lied to about whether or not Boris Johnson knew he was paying for his yeah. wallpaper. So, by the way, just just because I've said this to David privately, and I don't want to be a coward about it, I, my view is that um, that it's unconscionable for a British Prime Minister to have lied to his ethics advisors to the point where he would resign, and that anybody who would support continue supporting that being done right would be complicit in it and i'm not prepared to do that so for me certainly that would be an incredibly serious uh, moment that's why lord guy is my man of the year because he holds danny finkelstein's loyalty in his hand <laughs> finally danny could go off and rejoin the sdp uh, that would be no, i'm not this is this is not by the way this is i've said this to david too right this isn't about this would be about whether Boris Johnson was fit to be Prime Minister, not whether I'm a Conservative or not. Um, That's not dependent upon his wallpaper bill. 
Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there discussing, amongst other things, the idea of doing a PhD in David Davis studies. Well, it just so happened that about an hour later, I spoke to David Davis about how he was going to vote on the coronavirus measures, but never mind all that. I asked him what he thought about David Ivanovich's idea that he should be the subject of a PhD. I actually thought that was, I don't normally read Twitter, but that was drawn to my attention by my office. And I, I just bit back, because I don't normally respond, but I just bit back putting on there, you know, as in S-H-H-H, uh, uh, David, you, you'll get me into trouble. <laughs> but the, the, the truth is that uh, he's right in a way. I, I, in, in the sort of underpinning uh, thesis behind, behind what he's saying, Everything I do is for the purpose to try and change some some element of history, if you like, or some element of uh, ongoing policy. Uh, you know, I don't I don't resign for fun. It's a horrible thing to have to do. Um, and you know, so when I resigned from cabinet, it was designed to, uh, frankly, change the government uh, and get a different Brexit to the one that Theresa May was trying to put together. Uh, when I resigned from the front bench and forced a by-election, it was to stop the 42 days, which it did. Um, uh, a big illiberal measure. Uh, other things I do are aimed at different ways. I, I, yeah, the point about this uh, is that it's a formidably powerful role uh, is politics, is, is being a member of parliament, if you know how to use it. You know, but you've got to know how to use it, and you've got to be willing sometimes to do things that are a little bit painful uh, to make things happen. But if you are willing to do that, you can make formidable differences, and uh, that's what I've tried. Whether I've been successful or not, the other thing I was tempted to put back is send back to me just got net quit net zero question mark. You know, um, <laughs> whether, whether I've been successful, but the uh, but you know, so so uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm flattered by David's comment. Um, I hope it's true. I hope the underpinning concept is true. Whether I would bore some poor PhD student with my life, I'm quite sure. (laughs) But there we go. Let's see if I can add a bit more this afternoon. That was David Davis speaking to me on my Times Radio show. And of course, you can read Danny Finkelstein and David Wadovich every week in The Times. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, really, really fascinating interview with Tim Harford on how we should all approach big numbers. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for my chat with Tim Harford. Do you struggle with maths? Can you tell your R rate from your elbow? Big numbers in big news stories seems seem once again to be enjoying exponential growth. So how can we get our head round it without our heads hurting? Every day we're bombarded with data, statistics, graphs. What's up? What's down? What should we take seriously and what shouldn't we? Well, one man who knows is the award-winning economist, number cruncher, presenter of Radio 4 statistics show, more or less, and author of The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics, of course, it's Tim Harford, and he joins me now. Hi, Tim. Hello, Matt. It's good to be on the show. I should probably tell it's... you right from the start that that's the American title of the book. The British title is How to Make the World Add Up. So if people want to go and buy the book, they should they should ask for How to Make the World Add Up, not the Data Detective. Why, why, why is there... A, I'm intrigued by why there were different... Yeah, was no. it the Brits? Oh, tell me The Brits it. wouldn't understand the Data Detective, or the Americans the... wouldn't understand how the world adds up? It's... Well, it's pretty simple. So the, the Brits thought they had the best title. The Americans thought they had the best title. And nobody cares about the poor author who has to try and explain this on Twitter, on his website and so on. So they just went with what they wanted and um, left you you and me, Matt, have to pick up the consequences. But yes, the British title is How to Make the World Add Up. Fine. Well, let's try and do that then. Let's get try uh, because... We've all become armchair statisticians. We see the graphs on the news at night, in the papers, online, and we're trying to work out, is that a significant change? Is that not a significant change? So let's go right back to the, sort of the, the real basics, your easy rules then of, of how we should approach statistics. What should we be doing when confronted with some, some numbers? Okay, well, the very first thing, and this is not something you'll get in a lot of statistics books, is just ask yourself how you're feeling about the numbers that you see. I know it sounds very weird. It sounds like a, I don't know, a mindfulness instructor or something. But so often the statistics that we, that we latch onto, the ones we reject, we say, oh, that's fake news, or the ones we obsess over, it's because of our emotional reaction. So, you know, are, are we afraid or is it wishful thinking? Are we angry? Um, are we feeling vindicated? Oh, this, this will prove me right in some argument I had with, with a friend. Um, if you notice that you're having an emotional reaction, you can then go back to the number and I think think a little bit more clearly about it. So just to give you an example right now, obviously everybody is throwing numbers around about the Omicron variant. And so often I the numbers I see are framed in terms of, oh, this is going to be apocalyptic, so you're terrified, go and buy more toilet paper now, or oh, it's going to be really mild. And that's that's wishful thinking speaking, we don't really know yet. Or, oh, it's all, um, it's a dead cat strategy. It's Boris Johnson trying to distract from all of the mess he's made of, of all kinds of other issues. And I mean, all of these things might be true. It might be apocalyptic. It might be mild. It might well be a dead cat strategy, but none of them are really helping you go and have a look at the numbers and, and think more clearly. So just just notice, we're all, we're all human. We all have emotions. I do, uh, believe it or not. But just notice them and then maybe put them to one side for a second and, and go back and then you can start asking more questions about them. And I suppose that's the thing. We do it particularly with coronavirus when 
we latch on to instinctively. We want it to be going away. So we latch on to the graph which is going down and yeah. sort of turn our minds away from the one that might be going up. Absolutely. And there's always there's always another number, right? There's always a number, another graph. Numbers go up and down. There's always another opinion. Um, so just be a bit be a bit careful about that. Um, so once you've done that, another thing that you can do is um, just ask some, some really simple questions about, about context, um, about whether a number's big or small. It doesn't have to be super technical. Um, so, for example, the first thing I wanted to see when people started talking about Omicron and Omicron taking over from Delta, the previous variant, was, well, how quickly is this happening relative to previous waves? Um, and, you know, that's it's not very encouraging because it's happening extremely quickly. But you don't really you don't really know whether it's fast or slow until you, you know, you see well, what happened with Delta, what happened with Alpha. Remember Alpha last Christmas? What happened with the first wave? Once you can see some comparisons, or you can go, okay, what's happening in South Africa? Because they're ahead of us. That gives us a sense of, of what's going on. And there's some good and bad news coming out of South Africa. That sort of context is really helpful. And, and you can also just ask yourself, well, is it a big number? So here's a number that's, that's been in the news uh, this morning. 500,000 boosters booked in a single day. Website crashed. Boris Johnson's tweeting, oh, it's an amazing achievement, 500,000 boosters. Well, you can go, well, it's 500,000 boosters a lot. Um, and that's not very hard maths. So you can look on the, the uh, coronavirus data dashboard, very easy to access. There are 46 million people have had two jabs and there are 23 million people have had their booster. So that's 23 million more people need a booster kind of in, in the next few weeks. So 23 million people at half a million a day, that's going to take 46 days. That'll take us through to the end of January. So when you see that, you go, well, hang on, half a million people in a day is all right. I mean, there's quite a lot of people, but it's nothing special. We're going to have to have half a million a day every day for the next six weeks if we're going to hit this target of even of, of vaccinating, giving people boosters by the end of January, let alone by the end of December. So that sort of question, I mean, a 10-year-old can do that sort of maths. It's not hard maths. It just requires a, just a small moment of going, well, hang on, let me, let me just Google that number. Let me just divide one number by another. It's not a complicated thing. And yet I see uh, newspapers, I see the, the BBC News reporting this 500,000 as though it was some huge unprecedented thing, whereas really it's kind of, it's going to have to be business as usual from now on. The other big number which is uh, in the papers today is Sajid Javid announcing in the Commons that the UK Health Security Agency estimated that there were 200,000 new Omicron inf infections in a day. Yeah. Uh, that, that against 4,713 confirmed cases of Omicron in total. And, yeah. you know, and normally the figures we get on the telly is it's sort of 30, 40, 50,000 new cases. But cases is indifferent to infections and infections isn't a number we hear very often. And clearly what Sajid Javid is trying to do there is, and this we're all prone to do this, politicians and journalists, use the biggest number possible in order to reinforce your message. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, if it encourages people to get boosters, then then fine. But, um, you know, his heart's in the right place there. But I, I would want to understand how that number was arrived at. And I've been looking at it. I, I, I must admit, I haven't dug deep for hours, but I've been looking around. I've looked at the Health Security Agency website and I don't understand where the numbers come from. Um, so maybe I missed something. I don't want to 
to um, criticize Javid for my own failings to find the number. But it seems to me that he's got a number that, that is, hasn't been released to the public. Um, and um, if that's true, I'm not saying the number's wrong, uh, but it is important that, you know, when ministers give numbers, they, they're able to explain where they come, came from, where the estimate came from, release the report. And as I say, maybe I've just missed, maybe the report's there and I just haven't been able to find it. Um, but that's important because that's imp- important for public trust in statistics. If people can see how the number's been arrived at, um, they can see, and serious independent people, even if you can't check the number yourself, even if you don't have the math, you don't have the epidemiology, you know, people you trust, experts you trust can look at it and figure out where it came from. That's a lot more helpful. Um, I mean, I was surprised at the number 200,000. I'm not surprised at the idea that there are a lot of infections because you, you only have to look at the numbers coming out of South Africa to see that this, uh, you know, this is spreading very, very, very fast. So if it's not 200,000 a day, now it will be 200,000 a day very soon. And the, I suppose that thing about trust is really important, isn't it? And it's also partly when we get modelling. I mean, this is, again, this is an estimate based on modelling. And we've had yeah. so much modelling over the past almost two years now. At various groups, whether it's SAGE, committees of SAGE, um, government agencies, producing modelling. And actually, quite often, there's a sort of, best case scenario middle case worst case scenario quite often the worst case scenario is the one that's that's focused on but if when we've had these warnings before of we're going to hit 200,000 cases a day and we haven't people people who are susceptible to skepticism about government messaging maybe even susceptible to you know you quite quickly on a path then to sort of anti, maybe anti-vaxxers or deniers or whatever it might be and you're starting to give them a bit of traction because like you said government person at government press conference that we could reach x number we didn't get anything like that number so the next time you give me a big number i'm going to not believe you absolutely and we remember the mistakes and we don't remember when they got it right so some of the early <laughs> modeling out of, out of uh, imperial college you know the terrifying models that were coming out in in march uh, 2020 they got a lot of criticism but actually they got a lot of the basics right really early on the basis of very, uh, you know, very limited data. They were, they were, you know, it was an educated guess and they, they called a lot of things right. Like, how long is this going to last? How many people are at risk of death if we don't have a lockdown? Um, but, but people don't remember that. People, people just remember the stuff that went wrong. The one that really sticks in my mind is about this time last year, maybe, maybe about 13 months ago, Sir Patrick Valance standing up and saying cases are doubling roughly every uh, seven days. And if they continue to double every seven days, we're going to have this many cases, this many, this many uh, hospitalizations, this many deaths. And people just laid into him and said, oh, he's exaggerating. He's scaremongering. Um, And I went on a radio program and I said, well, no, it's not every seven days. It looks like it might be more like every nine days, but actually it wasn't far off. And everybody criticised him for scaremongering. And it didn't quite come true the way he said. And then we had that terrible, terrible Christmas and January wave. And tens of thousands of people died. And the NHS was overwhelmed again. And actually, he was, he was so close to being right. But people will, people, but he wasn't quite right. And people will grab onto the difference between not quite right and absolutely right. And they'll, they'll remember that and they hold grudges. Uh, so some of the models have been great. Some of the models have been very poor. We live in an uncertain world, as, as Omicron has, has proved, and you can't expect the modelers to get it right. But I'm, I mean, I'm happy they're out there doing it. 
I don't want to be scaremongering. I don't want to be terrified on the basis of the of the models. But, you know, we, we need people to have their best guess. I mean, there are things we can say, even though we do, you know, we do often get it wrong when we're thinking about the future. You still need somebody to try, look at the models, have a think about how they might be right, how they might be wrong and what we might want to do. It's interesting, actually. So uh, Dave has been in touch saying, how much better does society understand maths as a result of the pandemic? And do you think we've been on a bit of a journey that actually now we do understand uh, the difference between models, forecasts, best guests, actually with a bit of we don't know thrown in? Whereas at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, the public was probably inclined to see everything as sort of concrete certainty, because that's what we like to expect from politicians and scientists yeah i mean you said we'd been on a journey we really have been on a journey and it feels like are we nearly there yet and i I don't know is the answer but as far as maths is concerned uh, i think what i always emphasize and emphasize in the book how to make the world add up is people's motivation if you want to know if you're curious and you're interested in understanding the world we live in an age of wonders it's never been easier to get extra context, you need to go and check the initial source to see great data, data visualizations, uh, all kinds of experts, blogging, tweeting, um, being interviewed. It, it's a really rich source of, of understanding the world around us. And it's kind of, I mean, it can be terrifying, but it's also fascinating. It's very, very interesting time, time to be alive. But at the same time, it's never been easier to shut yourself up in a little bubble, to hear only the voices you want to hear, uh, to dismiss everything else as, as fake news. And so I, I really emphasise the motivation. And one of the things that happened early on in the pandemic is people were really motivated. All the political polarisation went away. I mean, it, it came back again pretty quickly. But for a few weeks, everybody just wanted to know. They were so eager to know, so open-minded, so hungry for information and ideas. And I, I just think that that moment is worth holding on to that curiosity and that that hunger hunger to know is something we should all hold on to and, and keep after this pandemic has eventually gone we obviously have a huge amount of data available to us and you know the government is pumping out information all the time Office of national statistics not you know has been putting out just data just today whether it's on the latest numbers of deaths excess deaths employment figures wages all this data just keeps on coming out how reliable is that data? How much sort of faith should we put in it? And how do we compare to other countries? Do we have more data, less data? What's the sort of, what's the right amount of data? Well, I think the, the answer is the, the right amount of data is data that provides you with the answers to the questions you have. And very often it's not a case of more data, it's a case of better quality data. So is, are we asking the right questions in, and do we have the right structure for gathering the data? Um, I think the Office for National Statistics has done a pretty good job in very difficult circumstances. And we're fairly lucky here in the UK. They they have a a really good survey of infection in the population as a whole. That gives us a a picture of infections more widely. We're not just relying on, well, who's getting tested and who's not getting tested. You know, are we we surge testing in particular areas that might provide a misleading picture? We've got a more representative sample done by the ONS. Um, And... What, we've got great gene sequencing, so we, you know, we'll we'll understand much more about Omicron than uh, most places, as we're doing a lot more uh, genetic sequencing. And the thing that really I think is amazing about the UK 
is uh, a trial called Recovery, which has been run by a couple of professors uh, at Oxford University in collaboration with hospitals all over the NHS. And what Recovery is, is basically a very simple trial where people come into hospital with COVID and they're randomly assigned with consent drugs that might be useful, might, might not be. We don't know. We think they might be. So you get these random assignments. So you get really good data because, because it's random. If someone gets the drug and then gets better, you know they get better because of the drug compared to the person who didn't get the drug because they weren't assigned because the doctor thought it would be it's worth a trial. This person looks like they're promising. It's all random. And recovery was set up in the very early days of the pandemic. And within weeks, we had data that dexamethasone, the steroid, was a pretty effective treatment, very cheap, easy to use. The estimate is that that within, the, within months had saved a million lives. And I spoke to one of the people behind the recovery trial, Martin Landre, uh, and uh, I said, well, what's it like to have saved a million people's lives? And he was very British. He's like, well, uh, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a million. I think it's probably more like 750,000 or something. I mean, it's probably 5 million now because, <laughs> because the, it goes on and on. Um, that's the, what they were doing wasn't complicated. It was just a case of getting organized, adding a little bit of extra code when you, you log into a hospital and you're signed in and they, you know, name and address and all of that, just that the computer just tossing a coin to figure out what drugs to, to give you that might work, that might not work, and we'll find out. And that's the kind of data we really need. Um, not, not huge, not billions of data points, but well-structured and answering questions that we urgently need answered. And, the, and recovery is still running and we're still figuring out treatments that work and treatments that don't work it's also important to figure that out that's the kind of data i think we need is there i mean possibly even away from coronavirus but is there a set of data a set of statistics do you'd like to be to get your hands on that you that, that just isn't available at the moment and it could be like to do with any part of life or the world or whatever it might be but just a, a set of numbers that you'd like to to crunch it, it's amazing what we don't know often when, when I look into this, you you figure out, for example, we've got really poor data on homelessness. We've got really poor data on uh, legal and illegal immigration. Um, so I'm always curious. I always want to know more. Um, I think what, what I would like to see is, is get all the nerds together every few months, you know, maybe once a year and uh, from different different parts of, uh, you know, the national conversation from, from academia, from think tanks and so on. And just to say what's out there that we don't know and that we might want to gather more data about. So three or four years ago, they would have said, I think, we don't know enough about viruses out there. We don't have a good pandemic testing system. We're going to get caught with our trousers down if there is a pandemic. Um, but maybe in the future, it's about, say, cybercrime or about uh, disinformation operations on social media. But it's always going to be changing. But just you can identify, you can think, what is it? Where are the gaps? Where are the blind spots? And can we start gathering data now before it becomes a crisis? That's what I want. It's absolutely fascinating that. And in terms of so let's have a look at some of the questions that uh, most of the questions I don't even understand. Uh, so uh, Chris <laughs> says, I'd like to ask about the monster group. What on earth does this mean? Should we be, does a monster group mean anything to you? It's an abstract mm. algae in an area of abstract oh, oh, algae known as group. Oh, no, no. I, the, yeah, no, I was like, well, I don't know. I haven't got a clue. No, no, I do know. No. Oh, so, um, so it, this is about symmetry. So if you, if you imagine 
uh, you may imagine a triangle, uh, you can sort of draw dotted lines. You may remember at primary school drawing dotted lines across a triangle and or you can divide it kind of down one side or down another side or down the third side. And it's got three lines of symmetry. Well, the monster group is a, this incredibly complex mathematical object with an incredibly high number of degrees of symmetry. You can draw those lines, you can flip it, you can rotate it, and it's symmetrical in all kinds of different ways. And it was um, discovered by a mathematician called John Conway, who died a few years ago, uh, actually pretty recently. Um, I, I may remember him, it may have been COVID, I'm afraid. So uh, I may have misremembered. But Conway also invented something called um, the game of life, which was a sort of simulation, not the Milton Bradley game, a kind of simulation on a computer that would produce this amazing complexity and these sort of uh, just, it's completely hypnotizing uh, and, and a sense early on that inside a computer, you could create a simulation of evolution and artificial life. So he's, he was an absolutely amazing mathematician, um, somewhat above my pay grade, but a really hypnotizing kind of guy. And he, he, he loved games. He loved play. He was an incredibly curious person. And that's something that I'm always advocating. It, you know, have fun. Don't be intimidated. Have fun. Be curious. Mess around. Enjoy yourself and, and see what you learn. Uh, just finally, Norman, uh, it's clearly a joke, this. Norman says, we'd all like a slice of pie, but I'm quite intrigued by or interested in your view of pie charts. There's a sort of school of thought, particularly in politics, that pie charts are a bad thing. Uh, you know, if you're doing election results in pie charts, it's really difficult to try and get your head around how, how they compare. What, where do you stand on pie charts? <laughs> where do I stand on pie charts? So in How to Make the World That Up, Chapter 8, I tell the story of Florence Nightingale and how using a very clever sort of pie chart, so this is the great nurse, um, using a clever kind of pie chart, she basically started and, and finished a public health revolution because she managed to communicate an incredibly important idea about how to fight disease. And she had this insight that if she drew the right diagram and the diagram looked good enough and clear enough and told the right story, she could win over the, the military establishment, the medical establishment, a woman in a man's world, and save millions of lives. So uh, pie charts, if they are used wisely, even pie charts can be a force for good. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.